0: Untold Stories is an annual conference started in 2019 by Startup Europe Networks and Startup Hungary. We believe founder stories are powerful, and we pride ourselves on having real, no-BS conversations to inspire and educate our community. Building off of our offline events, we developed this podcast with TechCamp Global to bring you untold stories from some of the best founders in the region year-round. In each episode, we try to uncover the details and hands-on tactics behind the founders' successes so you can benefit from their years of experience and lessons learned. Our hope is you will make fewer mistakes and find new ways to accelerate your growth. My name is Mary Alcantara, and this is the Untold Stories podcast. Let's dive in. Tamás Kadar is the CEO and co-founder of Sion. Sion develops fraud detection and prevention solutions to protect online businesses. They've had an amazing year, astronomical growth, and a high-profile Series A round, making them one of the darlings of the Hungarian startup ecosystem. In this untold story, Tamás will share his experience with product-led growth, hiring international talent, and the process of transitioning into the scale-up phase. Tomasz, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's start at the beginning. Tell us what was the inspiration for Sion.
1: Oh, uh, the inspiration came from you know a real life threat we had with my co-founder Benza back in the university years when we started our first business as a crypto exchange. Uh, we have faced uh, quite a few fraudulent transactions, so we were forced to you know look at the different solution providers on the market and then. Uh, develop our own in-house tool and of course as uh, why we are sitting here is why uh, the decision was to pivot into this B2B business uh, several years ago and uh, you know try to build a B2B software as a service product
0: so you moved from the crypto world very kind of controversial cutting edge and now you're in kind of the B2B startup space can you tell us a little bit about that transition how's that been for you
1: yeah i mean you know uh i have first came across crypto bitcoin about 10 years ago so uh you know i have i mean i have quite spent a lot of time into looking how blockchain works and uh the different altcoins at room everything so this you know i i don't really vote for any of these uh cryptos as you know one of them is the best or why one of them is better than the the other but I think the whole you know technology blockchain is is like a huge advantage of transparent publicly accessible databases so I'm really a fan of that and I think uh, anyone who knows how it works is it so yeah and now we you know are not really dealing with blockchain or crypto so much but we do work with crypto exchanges and other kind of blockchain based technology companies as a service provider mainly.
0: How, what portion of your customers today are these kind of crypto providers or exchanges?
1: I would say about 5%. Okay,
0: and but the, the 95% is actually outside crypto. It's kind of traditional online businesses that experience fraud. So tell us a little bit more about what Sion does exactly.
1: So we provide an API-based platform which helps online businesses to prevent fraud, fraudulent transactions. It can be integrated to different authentication points such as login, um, deposit, registration, withdrawal, and we build a complete profile of the user mainly by accessing the d- digital footprint of the customer and leveraging machine learning in order to rescore these customers and flag them in order to stop them to make any uh dishonest activity on our customers platform.
0: And who is kind of your ideal customer? Who is Sion really great for?
1: Yeah, our ICP are mainly today businesses between 50 to 500 people. And I would say mainly they are in the financial services sector. So online lending, payment processing companies, now banks, crypto exchanges, forex, trading companies, and uh, as far as we do work with iGaming companies and some other industries as well. So it's really hard to identify just a specific ICP because the product is uh, industry agnostic. So any online business can use it who has problems with online fraud. And uh, as well as, you know, there is no restriction of how big the business have to be in order to work with us. So we try to work with even small businesses and, you know, as big businesses as, like Air France or KLM.
0: And where geographically are most of your customers? Is it all around the world? Is there a particular niche where you're more active?
1: Uh, 40% from Europe, uh, 30% from the APEC region, so uh, Southeast Asia mostly, 20% from Latin America, and the rest is North America.
0: So it's pretty distributed, I would say, yeah, cool. And so you help not only with fraud detection, but also preventing fraud, right? Because of, can you tell us a little bit more about that piece?
1: Yeah, so, you know, detection and prevention is uh, one leads to another. So if you detect, uh, you know, suspicious customer, uh, then obviously you have to prevent them to take any further harm to your business.
0: So you're kind of coming up with ideas for, you know, you're helping them identify actions that they can take to prevent that sort of situation from happening again, basically.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, we try to assess that leverage machine learning. So artificial intelligence, which I don't like to say that much. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's the point to actually, you know, adapt to these different patterns we recognize and then just continuously improve based on any new other patterns like false positives and false negatives we we get as a feedback from the clients
0: why don't you like to say uh, ai
1: because i think we are very far from actually artificial intelligence but machine learning is a small part of it yeah
0: do you feel like people overuse that as a buzzword or they try to align themselves because ai is obviously a huge trend right now and everybody's looking for the top ai solutions but maybe people don't always understand what this means (laughs) is that part of? What you're thinking?
1: Yeah, in today's world, I think everyone tries to say as much buzzword <laughs> as they can just to uh, make them more interesting. But you know, in many cases, there is not much of truth behind or, or real technology.
0: Cool. Okay. So. In this series, we want to explore also the human side of entrepreneurship. So what made you want to become an entrepreneur? What can you tell us about your journey?
1: Yeah, um, when I was in high school, I have started my first business. I never you know, wanted to work for someone else, but always find a way where I can be my own boss so uh, i started out mm, around 16 years old i was buying smartphones from china and i have started to learn how to program myself and uh, you know i was dealing with these phones for quite a few years until i got to know crypto and then i got really fascinated by crypto and, and bitcoin and all all this so um yeah, and when i was younger uh, i was always thinking about you know, in 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 the summers, uh, that you know what my business I could start when I was even like twelve or thirteen years old. So, I was quite interested into uh, launching my own thing at an early age. And uh, and you know, still uh, <laughs> I I wouldn't imagine myself um, working in a nine to five job for someone else. But you know, this is twenty four seven. So.
0: And how did you kind of educate yourself? I mean, you obviously had kind of an internal motivation to be your own boss and do your own thing and, you know, work for yourself, but, you know, starting your own business when you're so young and thinking, you know, how did you navigate all of the different things that you need to know to be able to do that?
1: Um, You know, I was lucky enough to have access to internet at a very (laughs) early age. So, you know, uh, I could utilize Google quite well and all of the information pieces, which I could collect were accessible. So, you know, I I spent quite a lot of time on, on researching things and, building out you know strategies in order to achieve some goals or milestones so you know just totally like in a um, out of the way so all all by myself
0: Mm -hmm. can you tell us an example of some strategy that you learned online that you tried in one of your early businesses
1: oh yeah Mm, you know i i was always involved in like different forums you know let it be about the smartphone business or of course crypto or obviously now fraud detection so I try to, you know, collect every information piece by, you know, looking into different forums and, and learn about best practices. If I would have to highlight maybe one specific, you know, like, let's say knowledge, I, I really like to research uh, uh, nowadays venture capital blocks. So I have a um, newsletter subscription to many of these from Inside Partners, you know, Sequoia, uh, OpenView, specifically OpenView is, is very interesting for our business. And, and, you know, I try to consume as many mm, information uh, pieces and as many best practices as possible.
0: Cool. Have there been different mentors along the way who have helped you in your journey?
1: I would say that you know, or or uh, with, with Benson, with my co-founder, we haven't re- relied on advisors or or mentors. Um, there were always people who you know helped with feedback and with guidance, but mm, no specifically like uh, specific person who was mentoring us throughout the whole journey. I, I wouldn't be able to point out someone like that, but we are always very open-minded and, you know, we try to keep our ears also open to listen to people, collect feedback and always discuss and, and build on that. So, you know, even um, I think this is a really important part of building a successful software business to, you know, know your customers, listen to your customers, talk with your customers as, as much as possible. So definitely like I think <laughs> uh, our customers were also mentors to us because, you know, they were end users so they know what they were after and basically we could build our product in order to uh, satisfy their need.
0: I want to come back to mentors, but this is actually a great segue into our next topic, uh, which is product-led growth. So you guys are actually a great example of this. And I love how you talk about, you know, just being laser focused on your customers, um, Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, first of all, what is product-led growth? What does that mean to you? And how does that inform your strategy at Sion?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, this actually uh, wasn't something like intuitive from Benz and me to actually decide that we are going to be a product-led company, but it was more like, you know, natural way that we wanted to build a product, which we would like to buy ourselves as well. And we, we knew that on the market back then when we were researching about different tools to solve our own problem... We have recognized that most of these providers are legacy solution providers and they are targeting enterprise clients and they are doing this uh, top to bottom sales approach which means they are selling to chief executives and not to the end users and um, you know for example they haven't had a transparent pricing on their website they haven't offered a free trial they haven't had a self-boarding component so from the beginning we were you know offering a free trial we had our prices transparent we haven't had a self onboarding component until one month ago but we were you know from the beginning we were thinking about hey we, we need to create a software which we also like would like to buy and the buyer journey should be also frictionless just how our clients also do business so last year when we actually were preparing for this uh um, the series a round We have researched, you know, all these different venture capital firms and we realized that, you know, what we are actually doing is called a product-led growth approach. And um, fun fact that, you know, Logmin was also uh, a product-led company. And I think from our region, it's the best approach in order to scale up as fast as possible. And um, what it means essentially, as I explained, what it doesn't mean it means when uh, when you know you offer a, a, a product with um, a very seamless onboarding process so um in one hand you know um, when you are a developer at two a m you try to find a solution for a problem you don't you know scheduling uh in demo calls or you don't you know um Uh, you don't want to essentially speak to people. Uh, You want to just, you know, uh, try a tool and then propose to your manager in order to buy that or subscribe to that tool. So in order to achieve that, what you have to do is you have to be transparent with your pricing. It has to be straightforward to understand your commercial model. You have to offer some kind of a freemium or free trial in order to prove an ROI um, for your clients and as well as, interesting part is, is how onboarding works so what we could accomplish in the last couple of months is to actually launch our self-boarding component which means anyone who access our website can start a trial a 14 days trial of our tool and basically this helps them to understand and you know just become a product advocate uh, as soon as possible and not by the necessity of speaking to actual you know sales people uh who we don't call the really sales people but that's another thing so plg means when you know the product sells itself you don't have to spend money you shouldn't spend money on expensive sales people who go uh you know door knocking but what you have to do is build a world-class product that sells itself and then you have to focus on inbound and organic growth in order to just uh you know spread the good feedback and and uh, um, you know, the good, yeah, the The, the client's feedback is, is something that, you know, should help to create a brand awareness and, and you know, be known in your own field.
0: So the self-onboarding or self-onboarding process you were talking about, how long did that take you guys to implement?
1: Mm, I think about mm, three to four months.
0: And how long does it take a customer to actually, you know, onboard and integrate Xeon into their processes?
1: Well, with this self-boarding component, we are actually, uh, you know, it was for me a very important point to actually um, you know start to use the tool or get access to the tool by maximum two clicks. So if you go to a website, if you click on start a free trial, then that's our CTA, one of the CTAs, and then you click on, you know, the Google authentication box, then you know, you just authenticate yourself to through Google, which is the second click, and then, you know, you just launch the dashboard and then, you know, you're in the product, you started your trial. And, um, and and then, you know, uh, if anyone wants to integrate the tool, because, you know, you don't have to actually implement an API, we call it API-led or API-platform, because that's, you know, how businesses understand what you do. But actually, you can just try our Chrome extension, or we have uh, the graphical user interface, which allows you to look up email addresses, phone numbers, IP addresses, and receive all the rich information you can see true soon about these customer data points
0: so you're giving them value even before they you know get to the kind of more complex levels of your product basically yeah
1: yeah, yeah. exactly spot on yeah
0: yeah i think that's also it's a really interesting thing uh, yeah how did you so you said you weren't intentionally setting out to be a product-led kind of business but you know there's a lot I guess did you learn did you hire those expensive sales in the beginning and then realize that wasn't working and pivot away from that because I think when you have a product led strategy you're not spending your money on sales like you said but it's more in kind of customer support and you know having a really great kind of knowledge center so you know your end users can do a lot themselves can you talk a little bit about that balance I mean how did you how did you get to this you know what were kind of the lessons learned along the way
1: yeah so um, until we get to 1 million euro ARR and you are recommending revenue it was mainly done by i mean sales um customer success or customer service it was mainly done by Benson and me so my co-founder and myself we haven't invested before that to expensive salespeople. we haven't invested in customer service because i you know i i wanted to be the first line support to understand you know what are the pain points of the clients and i do still even today, check every customer interaction and and try to learn from that and 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 you know utilize these feedbacks for product development and um, yeah. So you know it 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 it, it was um, a decision as of just a few weeks before the pandemic that you know we are launching an uh, office in in London. So I I moved relocated to London at that time and and you know that's when we were set to to hire. Uh, so-called expensive salespeople, <laughs> salesperson, um, we weren't necessarily, you know, looking for- This is for your
0: chief commercial officer who you hired, That's right.
1: right? Yeah. Um, you know, we weren't necessarily looking for, let's say, expensive sales but we needed someone in London who can help us with our international growth and expansion. And we were fortunate enough to, uh, to meet Jimmy, Jimmy Fong, who is right now also in Budapest, actually, because they are with the UK team over here. So, um, just you know one week before the whole lockdown started we <laughs> opened the office which we of course had to close down and no one <laughs> went to the office for <laughs> half a year but that's another story <laughs> you know at the time we were like 18 people and now after about 14 months 13 months we are 85, and yeah, um, we just uh, reached a uh, uh, five times growth compared to the uh, levels of 2020 March. Congratulations! Yeah, Thank that's you.
0: amazing. In during the pandemic too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so and why London? Why were you looking? At, you it sounded like you it was very intentional that you wanted to grow there.
1: Yeah, um, you know, for me, um, um, I, I think London is still a, a fintech hub and and the biggest hub for fintechs in Europe. So if you check. How much venture capital money are being invested into startups. If you check like whole Europe, uh, London is 50% of that. And you know, the Fintech, fintech, as I said, ecosystem is the strongest over there. Um, So it was quite an educated decision, I would say.
0: So you went there more for the kind of funding opportunities than because it's a customer center for you.
1: Yep, exactly. And also to, you know, be able to recruit from the talent pool over there. So obviously from Budapest. We cannot fill easily some specific roles, so we have to, you know, take quick actions and and look for places where we can actually hire those uh, experts.
0: So okay, so how you said that you found Jimmy? I guess you were you were looking for somebody. Were you looking for this specific role, a chief commercial officer, or was that something you kind of developed together?
1: No, actually, uh, the plan wasn't to like you know just quickly hire some. It was you know to settle down, open the office, find someone. But uh, things. Happened really quickly. So when I was there, you know, looking for an apartment for myself, I was in an Airbnb, and uh, I have met uh, a hunter who's one of his friends. So one of the presentations benson did a couple of weeks before, and um, and he said to you know sit down for a chat with him. And on the same day, he said um, you know he will uh, Jimmy is also in town and he will be happy to meet me. So I met Jimmy in a, in a bar. We had some beers and a nice chat and and by Monday he started this was on a Thursday and by Monday he started to work for us
0: wow and this was the first kind of senior outside hire that you'd made in the company yep, yep. so yeah what's been the impact of having Jimmy on the team
1: yeah it's you know it's, it's it's been humongous so just to uh develop the right frameworks for efficient sales um and how to build out a great sales playbook and uh how to you know, do the same for marketing and how to set up, um, a, let's say, an sanitation plan for, like, mm-hmm. bonus plan for the salespeople, um, how to, like, how actually, like, B2B sales works. So we knew about, you know, like, that we have to do outreach and, and, you know, we have to convert the clients, but how and, and, and what these people actually do, we were quite, you know, unsure at that point. But Jimmy, with his more than 13 years knowledge in the same industry helped us a lot to actually like build out a very well working team and and of course scale up based on that.
0: So this is maybe a little bit of a controversial question, but we talked about being kind of a product-led company that you know, doesn't focus as much on sales. But now, you, or a year ago, you hired Jimmy to basically focus on sales. So is his idea, he's kind of going after the bigger fish, like the big enterprise customers. Is that kind of the strategy here?
1: Mm, not really. I wouldn't say. We, we, we still do need salespeople. We don't call them so much salespeople. We call them product advocates. So uh, our salespeople actually doesn't sell anything. They try to help clients help a potential clients, you know, with their problem. So what they do is they understand their problem, they try to see through the pain points and then try to, um, you know, offer solutions. And also one of the solutions are ours, our mm-hmm. tool. And then, you know, see ways how they can implement the tool and how the tool could actually solve these problems. And then of course discuss commercial integration and everything else that's, you know, required to close a successful deal. So um yeah you know it doesn't mean that we completely remove salespeople people because uh even a plg type of company do need salespeople people because uh you know uh, uh the bigger the client is um the more help they usually require during you know, onboarding or integration process and definitely you know we need still humans t- to help other humans so um you know we we, we have also launched our C on docs which is a completely renewed like knowledge base and and API reference documentation. So before that, we have sent out like PDFs uh, files to, you know, help our clients with integration and product features and high-level documentation. Um, That wasn't so um, great because, you know, people just don't like to read, you know, 30, 40 pages long PDFs (laughs) and, you know that you have to search with uh control command f and and it's (laughs) it's hard so we try to replicate what stripe or twilio did well and is to is basically to launch like uh, a knowledge base that you know incorporates everything from start to you know just best practices of the system or even white papers about specific problems we have recognized with different client types and have to prevent those even if it's outside our scope uh, even if it's not related to our solution they can still read about interesting things that you know can help them to to to, to fight fraud hmm.
0: it's kind of like a faq on steroids and yeah we do have an <laughs> faq in, uh, included too yeah so it's not it's not just so you still have a sales team but i guess they're kind of more than traditional salespeople because it's more of a mindset really the way it sounds mm-hmm. like you're the way you describe it That. Yes, their job is to sell the product, obviously, but by really focusing on the customer and kind of over delivering on what you promise and really yep. just supporting them in every way.
1: Yep. yep, that's right.
0: And that takes kind of a, a different kind of approach and different kind of you know training for, and onboarding.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say we try to, you know, follow on the follow this bottom to top approach of sales, which means we actually have the end users, and if they like the tool, if they like the service, they are becoming other product advocate and they also have to uh, become internal heroes in the organization and also to convince other decision makers in the process to uh, to buy the product and, and, and integrate it and, and, and you know just uh, s- start to use it. Yeah, so
0: they become kind of your extended salespeople like inside their organizations. Yep, yeah. yep that's right. So what would you say are your top challenges nowadays?
1: Um, one of the top challenges I would say is how to efficiently invest the money we got because that's that's a big challenge we are um in you know quite in a high growth phase which means that we we are not spending enough money which is a good problem to have mm-hmm. actually <laughs> so uh we try to see you know which buckets to fill in terms of marketing sales product development so we are experimenting with a lot of things at the same time and you know some of them might work out some of them not you know if i Excuse my French, you know, if we throw the sheet on the wall and see if it sticks or falls. Spaghetti yeah. on the wall, yeah. Yeah, 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 also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, yeah, so figuring out kind of what's going to be the next th- thing that's going to help you grow. So keeping mm-hmm. up this momentum and, yeah. So let's talk about fundraising for a second because you just had a big round. But um, maybe you can tell us a little bit because that's also something that, you know, until you're in it you know it's kind of hard to really know <laughs> how that whole world works but maybe you can tell us about your experience just you know fundraising for sion
1: mm-hmm. i would say we were quite conscious about the process and and how we dealt with you know investors because we actually got a lot of interest from different investors i would say all the top um, european um, vc firms have reached out to us in an outbound way and and you know they wanted to talk to us which is a great great sign but we were also cautious of our time because um if we were not fundraising it just doesn't make sense to talk to them so we we tried to you know push back as much as we could and then when we you know decided to actually start the fundraising process which was a thing around last year october then we started to of course develop the pitch deck the you know financial forecast all the different materials that will Uh, that were useful to to actually successfully close this round. And we went on the market as of early December. And um, yeah, we could receive the first term sheet in two weeks. So that was nice. And um, yeah, it was from another VC firm, but that was useful to actually have a better negotiation ground to, you know, be in a better position with other VC firms. So uh, we spent quite a considerable amount of time of speaking to all the decision makers and partners and, you know, everyone involved in the process. But that was really useful because we also got great feedback. You know, we could reflect that feedback on our own processes. So um, we have announced the news of the fundraising March 17. And, um, you know, in the three months, basically, we were working on the legals, which I don't really like, but that's (laughs) a necessity.
0: And what made you... Decide to raise at that time.
1: What I think is, you know, um, a company should start a fundraise if they have less than one year of runway. And uh, actually, we were, you know, already profitable multiple times and hovering around profitability. Back then, for us, the timing was at that moment because um, we were thinking, you know, that we can uh, shift gears at that time, so we can, you know, expand and and just invest in growth more. So. We thought that, you know, we can just grow faster if we have a uh, bigger, uh, let's say, resources pool uh, to try and, and see things if they work or not.
0: And also in this last round was the, the Swedish investor. You mentioned them. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about them and kind of, you know, why this is a big deal?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Crown Doom uh, is, you know, one of the most well-known uh, fintech investor in Europe now. Um, They came from Sweden (laughs) and they are based in Stockholm, but they have offices in Berlin, Silicon Valley. So um, they are, um, you know, behind companies like Spotify, Bolt, Klarna. So uh, one of the next bets uh, are we. And uh, they have also invested in some other great Hungarian startups um, such as Shaper 3D, Kraft. Um, So uh, they're very interested in, in this ecosystem. And, you know, uh, they're also very uh, professional firm. So everything, every interaction with them were like really top notch. And um, they they seem like a, a great partner. And, and, and they have, you know, find all these angel investors who have joined around for us. So they really made an immense number of intros um, to just advisors or potential angel investors and, you know, people who we could learn from. So... Uh, I think uh yeah the the, the the partnership has been great so far and I hope I hope that it will remain the same. And uh, you know I will have them also to see other uh Hungarian startups that that which they might consider to invest into as they did already. Um and they are still quite active they are um, raising their next fund so they will also be more um actually to, to be honest they are we we are like one of the biggest tickets for them. At this size, uh, they are more like seed, and 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 anything pre-series. But uh, we just fell um, into the right category still, so we were lucky enough to to meet them and get to know them and start to work with them.
0: Yeah, and that's awesome to be part of that portfolio with you know companies like Spotify next to you. So that's yeah. really cool.
1: Yeah, we also met the the I mean we spoke to the co-founders of Spotify too. So. Uh, yeah, they they help with anyhow do all the ways they can. So they try to you know move everything in order to help other companies. But and we also help other companies in their portfolio with advices. We already did that, so it's also great to you know give back.
0: Cool. So you said you had a few high-profile angels join the last round. Can you tell us who these people are and a little bit about their background?
1: Yeah. So um, not just this round, but also in one uh, well, of the seed run we got uh, on board smart money angel investors. So um, there was um, Pete Zaborski who is running a success, successful business uh, called ProPrivacy.com and, um, and, and he helped us a lot with SEO and how to manage organic channels and growth and actually we came across him by one of our uh, investors and um, basically he had a problem with fraud himself before investing in, the, in a company. And uh our investors proposed to him to try our tool to see if it works or not, and in one month we could reduce more than ninety five percent of all the fraudulent transactions, so he decided to invest in our in our company too and uh, and you know it was uh i think <laughs> quite a good uh validation as a yeah absolutely investment for him because he actually tried the tool and and it worked well for him um for the new round um we have now on board. the the founders of SumUp, so the the POS terminal and and payment uh, processing company. We have on board the the founders of N26, uh, successful um, German neobank. We have on board the founder of Tide, uh, UK-based business um, neobank as well, uh, business focus. We have on board as well as the ex cp of iZettle, which was a successful fintech, which was acquired by PayPal, um, and uh, it's out of Sweden. We have also, it's quite a few people (laughs) actually, Um, we have on board the ex-CFO of Revolut, who I just met last week for some beers. So he he was working closely with Nick for the first three years of Revolut, and he shared actually some really great insights and stories. And, um, yeah, I think that would be it. Um, yes, if if anything else comes to mind, I, I would <laughs> say maybe later.
0: What would be your advice to other startups that are thinking about fundraising? Because I, I kind of feel similarly to you, you know, don't take on money until you, a know what you're going to do with it, and B actually, you know, really need it. I mean, if the best would be to kind of go as you know far as you can, and you know, make your own profit and fund yourself from that. But it sounds like you got to the point where okay, now we know what we need to do, and if we have money, it's going to really accelerate our growth. What else would you say, kind of to you know startups trying to figure out when to do their first round?
1: I mean, in 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 an ideal world, uh, you know, you you wouldn't really need to rely on external funding, so. You know, it's the best if you are the ultimate shareholder uh, of your own firm, but you know, it's even better if you have a team who also shares the success with you and also if they are shareholders in your company. But obviously like, you know, startups works uh, because they get external funding and they can grow quickly because they can use the resources in a smart way where they reinvest in things that helps them to grow. Um, I would say uh, when when you know you go on on the first time on, on the market and look, look for fundraising, that can be even at the time when you have just a pitch deck. So you don't even, well, I would <laughs> maybe wouldn't uh, do that, but maybe when you have a, a website and a pitch deck, then it's already like a, a good time. Even with a pitch deck, I heard stories when they didn't have a domain and, and the logo and stuff like that. But when you have an idea, you can already like look for angel investors and, and, you know, uh basically start everything like the whole op- operation after uh, after you got your like micro financing round
0: so you've done a couple rounds so far can you tell us about your fundraising journey?
1: we actually have uh, raised funds as of uh, the beginning of 2017 ah, okay. just so uh, we have uh, just you know as we finished university we have uh, at the last in the last semester we started to, go to different events and um and pitched see on in some of the co-working spaces here uh, in Budapest. And as well as in, in Germany, we did that. And, well, the first semester when we were out of university, we have graduated, that's when we got um 2017 January, the first pre-seed investment, mm-hmm. round, I would say. A really small ticket of 50,000 euros. But that was really helpful for us with Benson you know, to... Um, just two of us to start to work out in a, a co-working space, and you know, focus on finding the right product market fit. So we have grown the team up to like eight people by the end of two thousand seventeen, and then we got to meet um uh, uh, the VC arm of OTP Bank. So they have invested at that time five hundred thousand euros with some other angels inva- and also an. Um, english firm so that was our real kickoff moment i would say in 2017 we with benson we were learning the most actually like you know finding out how things should work what's how how to sell a product how to build a product we haven't had much background knowledge from other ventures or from university because that just wasn't there, so.
0: Yeah, and so coming back to this idea of mentorship and how you learn, so it sounds like you and Benza were really kind of, you know, a strong team from the beginning and could kind of help each other and, and learn. Is there times, though, when you would bring in somebody kind of on a case-by-case basis, like, okay, now we're really focusing on this fundraising piece or, you know, whatever, and, and having like a, a trusted advisor? I know you said you haven't had somebody who's been there kind of all the way, but you know, from time to time, how have you kind of sought advice or expertise on these different topics?
1: No, in every topic, we look for, you know, external advice. So even when we started out, you know, to incorporate the company, we talk with, you know, lawyers, people who have also incorporated the company before or who got their first venture funding. We talk to like, you know, other startup founders to see like what are the best practices. And we still do that even today. So whenever there is a challenge and there is like some unclarity, we try to like, speak with external people consultants uh people from our network and you know it's great that we could actually close this last round with the help of also six new angels joining from some of the great stories uh, fintech stories in Europe so they also help us now to to just you know um share best practices know-how how they uh, solve specific problems um and and yeah i, I think it's very important to always um uh, you know listen to everyone but then you know build your own decision. So it's, 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 it's always necessary to not to just always rely on on, on one feedback source, but always, you know, listen to everyone and, and, and try to make make your own right judgment. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's cool, too. Yeah. am um, that you have these angels on board now in this round, how do you how do you kind of seek their expertise or try to, you know, get them how do you you know keep them active and I guess you have a board meeting obviously with them, but is there other kind of touch points that you try to keep up?
1: Yeah, you know we are in uh whatsapp groups with them so when there is something to clarify or when I have some ideas, uh, I can just you know drop in in there and and see what their response is uh they're really helpful uh, which is great and also um you know it, it just really like a shortcut to many different things and that's why we have actually quite Put some focus on um, raising money for a, a smart money investor who has a great network, and also, you know, help to have to build the the whole uh, platform and the organization, because um, otherwise we would have to pay a lot for external advisors, and uh, they're not always the best source of uh, information. Yeah.
0: So when did you close this most recent round?
1: Um, well, officially in March okay. this year. Okay. And
0: how has that been? how how have you been able to kind of capitalize on that smart money, I guess, since then?
1: Mm, very well. So we actually have recurring meetings with uh, some of the angels. Mm, multiple times I have reached out to, uh, with the same question to to, to to multiple ones of these angels. And, and you know, I asked their feedback, their opinion, which they're very upfront to give because they're also shareholders in the company. So I think that's a nice synergy and and, and it's useful to actually have this kind of investors and 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 that's why I would think that you know even more than the capital is uh important the actual uh expertise and uh knowledge of uh other successful entrepreneurs and and that's why you know it's it's just hard to to find in in a city like budapest uh these uh, experts because just the ecosystem is not as developed as in london yeah obviously because it's a much much bigger city so
0: do you ever get conflicting pieces of advice from your angels?
1: Mm, haven't got any yet. Oh. So it's good that, you know, I I, I know that it's, it's it's a good advice, which I can implement. It's validated. Yeah, yeah. everybody says the same thing. Yeah. yeah,
0: So you talked about, yeah, kind of the differences between Budapest and London. So it sounds like London is where most of your sales team is, right? So this is... No, actually no. no. It's uh, okay. quite
1: interesting because uh, when I moved to London, uh, I had uh, the idea of building up the whole sales and marketing team in London. Um, just because uh, we were struggling to find the right experts in Budapest, and we couldn't really find like you know um, really strong players with B two B experience, just because um, there are not many out of them here. <laughs> so um, and Jimmy came with the mindset that hey he can write the playbook, he can help Hungarian people to build on that and and you know just do the job as as what they would do in in, in London. Uh, and it worked. I was quite skeptical in the beginning because, you know, as I said, we're looking for people with experience. But he said, let's look for people without experience, but with just some like technical knowledge or who spend time with other software companies. And 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 it worked. So um, our sales people now are mostly sitting in Budapest, mm. and uh, they are. Uh, being managed by uh, a commercial leader jimmy so he does a great job on on that and so
0: this is something that can be taught so once you have somebody with the experience and the playbook you can train up people to do this from anywhere
1: of course yeah you can teach it in university if 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 you want to you can you know uh collect this experience by working for companies like us so it's definitely not impossible
0: so who's in london then because you mentioned you have a uk team
1: yeah uh mostly commercial leadership and uh, and and also we have, you know, mainly people uh, who as jobs where you are required to speak native English. So copywriters or other content managers, the head of global marketing. Now we will have three new people, so we will be like ten people now. Product marketing manager, SEO manager, and uh, this kind of roles mainly.
0: And the development and a good proportion of the sales staff is here in
1: Hungary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: and. Yeah, how do you feel about, you're still here, you're still based in Hungary, you still feel like this is a good place to run your business. Um, Yeah, even your customers are based around the world. I mean, how do you divide your time? Is there a reason for you to be going to other markets physically or can you do pretty much everything online?
1: Mm, Yeah, there's always, you know, um, uh, a reason why you should stay closer to your customers is because, the, the let's say, the cultural fit or cultural closeness. So um, that's that's one thing. Another thing is time zones. So it's very hard to recruit people for afternoon and night shifts in Budapest mm. who speak Spanish, for example. So that's why we are, you know, opening up to recruiting people in 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 uh, in different places. Like we just opened not long ago our office in Austin, Texas, and uh, <laughs> actually we still struggle to people to to hire people there because all the other companies, you know, now hiring there. So. Uh, Moving out of the Silicon Valley and, and, and yeah, you
0: know. everybody's moving from California to Texas. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: and uh, and yeah, you know, it's a challenge for us <laughs> to, to recruit people because we are an unknown company there with no traction. But nevertheless, you know, um, we already have one salesperson, and we are uh, you know, and to to recruit some more, and um, and you know, mainly looking for people who can support the Latin American expansion as well as North American expansion. That's um, a strategic point, and as well as uh, we are expanding to Jakarta, Indonesia. So we are trying to recruit now eight people over there, and um, and, and you know to support or our clients in Southeast Asia. So that's uh, quite um, you know also a strategic decision which we have made uh, even before fundraising, but now we can do it much quicker based on the funds we got than you know just growing organically and and then, you know, uh, delaying it because of, you know, maybe we wouldn't grow as fast uh, just based on the organic uh, resources, organic growth we got. So with the the Series A round, we can accelerate all these different um, strategic plans and, and execute them in a shorter time frame
0: so you have budapest london austin and now jakarta
1: yeah hopefully soon yes
0: and you're and you're managing all of these centrally or how what's the strategy i, I guess in london you have jimmy but in in austin and in jakarta what are are you thinking about having a country manager or not really everybody's going to kind of be centrally plugged in
1: mm-hmm. uh, i would say yes yeah, cent- centrally plugged in so <laughs> Uh, we plan to invite uh, all of these new hires to Budapest for a couple of months. So one month for sales or marketing positions, and uh, a bit more for IT and customer success po- positions. Uh, I think it's very important to, you know, uh, spend as much face time as you can with uh, these different um hires and uh and and you know it's quite a complex product that we are trying to sell to solve quite a complex problem so I think it's ultimately um necessary to 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 to, to you know to share your company's culture uh, get to know better your new new uh teammates and just uh you know influence how uh they have to think about things you you also have to solve so I think um yeah and because of the pandemic right now you know it's it's quite hard yeah but uh as soon as it's over uh they're all gonna come over to Budahurst to spend some weeks with us and
0: get their one month of boot camp and facetime yeah yeah Yeah.
1: maybe a bit, bit delayed but yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: and then maybe every year you get everybody together for some kind of a yeah. company retreat or definitely Yeah. yeah, yeah. cool so Okay, so you're expanding to all these different markets and I, I think what makes that makes a lot of sense your strategy about just having kind of, you know, people in every time zone, basically, so yeah. you can cover the support piece. Um, are you localizing your content also for all these different countries or maybe you can talk about that a little bit?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, not yet, but it's planned. So we would like to launch our blog and website in Spanish language too. Mm, right now, everything is in English every content content piece on our website and I think Latin America is a great and big market and also there is a lot of fraud that's ongoing there so um, for us that's very uh, appealing and for the APAC region, you know where I said um, basically the second largest market for us most of the people speak English to some extent like in Singapore or the Philippines so I don't think in short term we would like to uh, localize our, our website to uh, those different languages over there, but maybe long term, yes, uh, we will have to see what's the inter- interest of the, of, of the markets there. But I think we are quite dominant in Indonesia, Vietnam and, and the Philippines, so those are three key uh, markets for us and uh, they speak well English, mm, the majority of the people who we work with. so. Uh, I think they also mainly search in English to find content or, and find answers in Google. So I don't think, you know, we would win so much by being completely localized, but it's also a huge investment from our end. So translating services in a good way are, uh, are quite, quite uh, expensive.
0: What about German?
1: Um, you know, uh, Dach region is not really um, a focus market for us mainly uh because they don't um uh, transact online so much so mm. they don't like to use their credit cards like in some other regions and um i think all all, all german people speak english better than us so <laughs> yeah. yeah so um, no i i i think for the german market we would stay english mainly but um yeah it's 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 a hard market to crack on which we haven't really uh, succeeded in in maybe in the future, we'll see if, if, if that's required. And I, if, if I see that, you know, if it would be totally German uh, on the website, then uh, if the conversions will be higher, then definitely that's something I, I would consider and do.
0: Yeah, yeah. you just mentioned Germany a couple of times that you spent time there, you were looking for investment from there, mm-hmm. but I, because I, I think Berlin is also kind of a fintech hub as well.
1: Yep, yep, it's, it's an e-commerce hub. That's like the mm. e-commerce uh, capital of, of Europe. Uh, but yeah, there are also some fintechs, uh, fintech companies over there. Um, but you don't have to speak, uh, you know, German <laughs> in, in Berlin. Uh, so so I, I, I think that, you know, maybe in, in, in next year, we might consider setting up also some kind of operation over there if we cannot do from outside. But uh, we do have people in our company who speaks uh, German. And... Uh, you know, they they also try to sell in German to clients uh, when, when they, you know, come to talk to us.
0: Yeah, I think even that's yeah, another point too. You know, having people who speak the language is also different than maybe the written content is enough to be in English. But when you have the, the product advocates, if they can yeah. kind of get closer, that's sure. cool. Um, this has been great, Tomasz. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Do you have any advice for other aspiring founders on their journeys? Uh, what's the message you want to leave our audience with?
1: Yeah, I. Mm, what mm, I I would suggest to every potential entrepreneur is to don't be afraid to take risks. So without risks, there is no chance of success. Um, I think that's one of the most important things in. In, in business, um, if 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 you are afraid to take steps, then you're never gonna, you know, get where you want to. So, uh, and I would I would say also to to don't be afraid to experience with things and uh, see if the spaghetti or the other thing <laughs> sticks or, or, or falls. So, um, yeah, um, don't be afraid to even relocate if you know don't you feel like you you are in in the right place. So, um, you know, Europe is quite Quite open and and you can easily you know start business in, in in multiple countries. So I I don't think you know that's a big holdback. Um, you know there are many many successful entrepreneurs from Eastern Europe uh, in in London or even in U.S. capitals so or even Stockholm or Berlin or Amsterdam. So. You know, wherever uh, t- there's a saying which goes like, um, talent is distributed globally, but opportunity is not. So you have to go, where is the opportunity? If you don't find um, investors in your city who you like, mm, then you have to go to another city. And and yeah, just, you know, don't give up on that. So if you, if you think your idea is great, you are, uh, as an entrepreneur, is the main one who have to believe in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, the investors won't believe in you if you you know believe in you and really believe in yourself then you know other people will follow and also believe in you and they're gonna invest money and they're gonna trust you with their business and uh um you, know, you have to be passionate about what you do so take risks um believe in yourself and be passionate about it i think that's um a very good and but yeah very good advice i would um propose to any uh, fellow entrepreneurs
0: awesome All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was great to get to know the Sion story a little bit more, and we look forward to watching your progress.
1: My pleasure, and Thank you, too.
0: All right. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when we release new episodes. Tune in next time as we continue to deep dive and uncover more hidden gems in the Untold Stories podcast. Check out our show notes for more resources about the topics we discuss and anything we mentioned during the podcast. Let us know what was your key takeaway from today's episode. And if you found this content useful, please feel free to share it with anyone else you think would benefit from it.